If you're good at something, never do it for free. Typhoon, y'all know me, and I'm coming up, just wait and see. If you're good at something, never do it for free. But if you're great at something, would you still agree? Typhoon, y'all know me, and I'm coming up, just wait and see. If you're good at something, never do it for free. But if you're great at something, would you still agree? So let me hey everyone, welcome to, to, I guess it's the new name of the podcast, Kevin and the Wu-Tang Clan. And from the Wu-Tang Clan, we have... Andrew Ramondi joining me as we talk and preview the NBA Finals. Not that much craziness going on <laughs> this week. I mean, just a little bit with that Baxter Holmes uh, piece about the Lakers, but we'll definitely get to that um, at the end of the podcast. But Andrew, we got to watch the Toronto-Milwaukee Game 6 at the bar at her favorite Wings place at this point right now. We've gone there two straight times now uh, for the NCAA March Madness tournament and then now for that game. What were your general thoughts about watching that game and how Toronto was able to close it out in game six? Drake was there uh, pumping up the crowd right outside um, their stadium. So what were your general thoughts on that and all the things that I guess – what it says about Toronto's team and then what it also says about Milwaukee moving forward. Well, first and foremost, um, thanks for having me. I was going to say I'm happy to be part of the clan, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that has a great ring to right, it. Right. But uh, I, I appreciate that. Um, it was it was an interesting game. I, I thought I thought going in, if you had asked me for my prediction, I guess I probably would have predicted the Bucks were going to win and take it to seven. Although I did say on our last podcast that I thought whoever won game five was probably going to win the series. And Toronto surprisingly won that, won that game five. Um, and I guess watching game six with you and, you know, just kind of observing things, I, I didn't feel that surprised. It felt like everything kind of clicked into focus. Like that was the game that kind of like exemplified the series in a way, which was basically like Kawhi's incredible. He had, it was interesting in the first half. I was like to you, I was like, doesn't Kawhi seem to be having like a little bit of a quiet game? And you agreed. And then it like, he had like 15 or something. And yeah. then he ended up with like 35 or however, 39 or however many. 15 efficient. And it was just yeah. like super quiet assassin yeah. type of stuff. So, you know, Kawhi being really good. And then I think, un so I think basically it boils down to two things. Kawhi pretty steadily outplayed Giannis. Kyle Lowry outplayed Middleton and Bledsoe. And the role players outplayed the Bucks' role players, basically. Right, Van so, Vliet kind of came Yeah, Van Vliet from nowhere. Uh, being able to be efficient, knock down shots, and actually create a little offense in certain moments, especially with Giannis, I mean, with Kawhi not on the floor or giving Kyle Lowry a little bit of a break, that, that proved very useful. While on the other hand, you saw Miritich pretty much relegated to the sidelines and Eric Bledsoe proving pretty much unplayable. Like I have no like strong anti-Bledsoe sentiment, but as the series was going on, especially when we would talk, I was just harping to you kind of how, especially with the ball in his hands, how like hapless he looked. I'm used to that with some Blazer players and maybe you feel like that with a certain Nets guy or something. It's like when they have the ball in their hands and like they're, going to create something whether it's like take a shot or we'll 
playmaking, like, and you're like, ooh, ooh, right, like right. you're kind of gripping the edge of your seat a little bit. It's like, what that's, is he doing? That what is, is he doing? Of, yeah, yeah, like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Like, that's kind of how I felt when Bledsoe had the ball in his hands most of the series. And you saw him pretty much replaced with George Hill down the stretch in games five and six. So, you know, with all that, I, I with those things kind of playing themselves out for probably like the third or fourth time in the series... I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, there's much to be said about the Bucks losing four straight. They had only lost uh, two games in a row once during the regular season. But uh, Zach Lowe brought this up in his piece today kind of about, about the finals. Like, the playoffs is where those regular season trends go to die often. So, And then know. I think also where weaknesses get magnified and amplified, mm-hmm. too. And I think that was kind of on full display for the Bucks when – Looking at Giannis and with that offense being so Giannis-centric that you kind of saw what happens when you kind of put two or three guys in front of him to stop his yeah. drives um, to the to the basket. And when you kind of force him to be a perimeter player, he's not consistent enough to make enough shots and be enough of a playmaker. And I think that's a result of guys not making shots around him like Eric Bledsoe, where there were times where Giannis would penetrate and kick it out to Bledsoe. Bledsoe had open an open three opportunities and he just wouldn't take it. And he would basically pump fake and try to drive into that mess of the middle of the, f- uh, of the court. And, that right there kind of just shows where Bledsoe had struggled throughout the this series, it seemed like, where he just could not make a shot and where you'd see someone like, I don't know, Brooke Lopez kind of proving as one of these guys that's like a key rotation guy yeah, for them. Brooke which Lopez is really, was probably the best of those. Which is kind of crazy players. crazy to say. So they yeah, Milwaukee needed someone like Chris Middleton, and yeah. um, and it was the same for both sides. It seemed like uh, Lowry was for Toronto was able to step up enough for them um, to the point where it really carried Toronto forward in Game Six and for the series. And then that four-game losing streak, I I wouldn't put much of the, I I don't know. They were pretty much in most of the games in game. Uh, from game three through game six and I wouldn't put much of I would say the lack of adjustments on uh, coach Bud at all it just seemed like Milwaukee wasn't able to make enough shots yeah no I agree with you I'm not putting that much stock in it there are a couple interesting kind of like hot takey points to raise one is like do the Bucks need a second best player who's and you brought this up a lot during the regular season actually right and i think it reared its head again even though it's not something people talked about necessarily because they kind of talked about the efficiency of the buck system and things of that nature but you raised kind of the common sense point of just like normally a championship team's second best player is better than middleton or Eric Bledsoe, you know what I mean? Take right. a pick of who the second best player mm-hmm. on that team is. And 
with Chris Middleton entering free agency, Bledsoe's now locked up for a little bit. There was an article, you know, Giannis is saying, as kind of a guy who's considered a loyal guy, he's kind of saying, well, I kind of want to run it back, bring everybody back. Like, do you need to look for some sort of upgrade in that second best player slot? be it a trade or, you know, I don't know the, if the Bucks have much lure in free agency or what their cap space situation is like, but uh, do they need to pursue other paths to, to success other than internal development? The other point, hot takey point, I think is interesting that you started to bring up that I just, especially when I was watching game six and it's close, you know, <clears throat> down the stretch, it's pretty much expected that your best player is going to take the shot. And with Giannis, it's kind of because he's not really a jump shooting type, like, and because his game is predicated on such, like, basically, like, picking up a head of steam and going to the basket. Like, it's hard to, like, draw something up for Giannis in a late game situation. And if you commit, you can more easily than other players, I think, like, force the ball out of his hands in a late game situation and make, you know, Bledsoe or Miritich or whoever, what have you, take take that last shot. Because it's like, okay, we're just going to wall him off, basically, and he'll either have to take a really, really difficult shot going, going towards the rim or, you know, he'll have to kick it out. So I think we saw he was still... I think he shot something like 36% on threes in this series. Like next year, his three-pointer as a continued weapon will be something to keep a tab on for sure. And that could theoretically change things a lot about this conversation. But I I found that kind of intriguing, uh, like an intriguing wrinkle. And it becomes more and more important as the in the playoffs and those key possessions on the set. But the one thing I wanted to I wanted to bring up also, in regard to the four game losing four games straight and things things of that nature, one thing I haven't really heard people mention that I'm a little bit surprised about is that this Bucks team is still fairly inexperienced yep. in playoff moments. And sure the Raptors aren't like the most experienced team in the world either. But at the end of the day, there are three main guys. Lowry, although the Raptors never had like tons of playoffs playoff success still got to like the eastern conference yeah exactly Kawhi's a finals mvp and marcus all was on some grizzlies teams that reached the western conference finals and stuff like that so whereas the bucks really they kind of had last year and that's that's pretty much it totally agree. so i i think there's an argument to be made if you're if you want to look at things from the bucks perspective with kind of a more rosy outlook i think that idea that like this was kind of their first Sometimes there are those situations where, like, a team gets to the mountaintop one year earlier than expected, you know, be it the Warriors early on or something like that. OKC back in the day. Sure, like, but yeah. more and more often it takes – you have that one disappointment before you you kind of uh, reach your apex. So there's an argument to be made on that side as well, yeah. I think. Yeah, and I, I mean, I kind of was looking quickly at – the cap situation for the Bucks, I think it's going to be really tough for them to bring someone in of equal value yeah. to Chris Middleton. So it seems like they're kind of, I wouldn't say they're stuck because I think Middleton's a nice player, yeah. but I think they're going to have to re-sign him to close to max deal to even, you know, retain so- what they have. 
Um, I know Brogdon is coming is going to be yep. a free agent. We as had well. a nice discussion about right. that. So at the bar. I think he'll probably be re-signed too. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit when we were talking at the bar, it seemed like I was a little bit higher on him in terms of what he would get. But I think we've both agreed that he'll command at least probably a Marcus Smartish. A Marcus right. Smart. <laughs> um, there's a lot of weird consonant sounds in that. Right, a Marcus right. Smart esque deal, probably mm-hmm. giving him somewhere in the range of like twelve million a year at at least. But I think the Bucks kind of moving forward when they're thinking about players to to keep and let go. I don't really know how they keep keep Brook Lopez, yeah. especially with how much money they're gonna commit to him and. There's this whole, like, and we talked about this narrative in our last podcast with big men centers and trying to replace them. And, like, I know that he's a good player, and he was, you know, you kind of saw all these gifts of him on the bench being a good teammate, all that type of stuff. But at the end of the day, is he going to be worth three years, you know, for $45 million? And I'm not sure you can commit that much money when you have a player like DJ Wilson on the bench and maybe you just kind of let him grow. And Tony Snell's on the books for three more years at $10 million, $10 million a piece, and he was not even in the rotation for them. So he's going to have to, like, they're going to have to do something with that. And then Mirit- uh, Miritich is for 12 and a half um, he's off the books at this point. And I don't know how you re-sign him either because you kind of have Versan Ilyasova on, you know, for three more years at $7 million. Yeah. So it seems like they're, they're going to, I feel like have a couple pieces be let go this summer, but they still have a couple players. And I think you kind of saw it over the course of the regular season where you saw players like DJ Wilson, and Ersan Ilyasova kind of do things very similarly to what Miritich and Lopez did uh, this past year and then maybe kind of play um, like the trade deadline game uh, for for next February and see what players that they can get, maybe take on a little bit more long-term money and trade out someone like George Hill or something to take on some more long-term money um, moving forward. And and I think that's where it becomes difficult um, for this Bucks management to try to decide whether or not this team is good enough to reach the NBA Finals and ultimately challenge and win a title. Um, and I think you're banking a lot on the development of Giannis and seeing yeah. whether or not he's going to be able to push this team forward. Yeah, basically you're banking on, and he's already fairly close, but you're banking on him basically be able to being able to become a LeBron where you can reach the NBA Finals even without having that second all-star exactly. player. And, hey, it should be mentioned that Chris Middleton was an all-star this year. I right, mean, right. It's not like... No, no small, no, I'm not trying to, Chris Middleton ain't chopped liver, that's, that's for sure. You know, it was so funny when you were mentioning the, like, replacing Lopez, I'm, my mind went to a weird place. I was thinking about uh, that when they traded Thon Maker for Stanley Johnson at the trade deadline. Yep. And I don't even know if Stanley Johnson was on the team come yeah. playoff time, but I'm like, huh, I wonder if they wish, like, 
damn, I kind of wish we still had Thon Maker, like, c- giving him a try at that Brook Lopez. And he was getting some that minutes Brooke for Lopez Detroit. Spot. Yeah. Like, being able to shoot the three and basically play decent post-defense. And he's a young guy. Like, not that Thon Maker would have changed, no. like, the outcome of this playoff series. No. But I think he was a young player. Yeah. And, you, and I think a lot of times it's hard to – it's hard to give those young players chance after chance after chance when you put them in situations and they haven't shown it when they're still only like 22, 23 years old of and course. they still have time to develop. And especially 22, 23, 24 right. for Thonmaker, right. given as the controver- <laughs> early yeah. career controversy about right. his age. Exactly. So it depends like how you see that player development and when a player becomes a finished product like Giannis is 25 I believe 24 Mm -hmm. 25 and he is someone that doesn't seem like he's really reached his potential yet like if he's able to shoot at a clip of 36 percent and and add a couple more attempts from three and then develop a little bit more of a post-up game then he be he becomes like one probably the best player in the league he is the mvp this year most likely so it's crazy to see that he's the mvp this year and he has room to improve yeah and i just wanted to bring up one thing about the cap space or like the going forward thing as we mentioned on the last podcast you know next year it'll be interesting to see a thing to kind of keep tabs on next year, I think, will just be to monitor that Buck situation, how they're doing in the regular season, how content Giannis looks and stuff. Because at the end of the year, he'll probably be eligible for one of those designated player extensions. Right. And it'll, he'll kind of reach an Anthony Davis-esque inflection point in like whether it looks like he has a long-term future with the Bucks or not. And another thing to take into account is that this is a Buck, a very small market team, under fairly new ownership, the Edens and whoever else leadership uh, Mark Lazary, yeah, yeah leadership think. group has really only been in power for a short period of time. So this will be their first test in seeing when it comes to re-signing Middleton, Brogdon, possibly going into because I think they're under the salary cap now, but possibly mm-hmm. going into the luxury tax. Like it'll be interesting to see. We'll start to get a beat on how much they're willing to spend and how proportionate their title chances will have to be for them to to break open the checkbook yeah i think that's gonna be a fascinating thing it doesn't seem i mean eden the edens aren't like really from the small market area they're like he i think he's a new york guy like he's He's the owner of Aston Villa out in yes. a, who, who just got promoted. Who Shout out to my friend Kevin Tanzi, a gigantic Aston Villa exactly. fan. Exactly. So said he shed a few s- tears after, so after that, their that derby, mon- derby right. win. Right, right. That money's going to be coming in <laughs> as well. So, I mean, I don't think he's lacking any resources in terms of potentially going into luxury tax, especially if this team is, has a shot at making the making the finals and all that type of stuff. I think the the more interesting question and I think this has been the talk of the NBA for as before the season even started when there was kind of this clear delineation of this top 4 of Philly, Boston, Milwaukee and Toronto in terms of like I don't know how in terms of I guess going into the off season how would you handicap 
these four teams and how would you rank maybe these four teams moving forward? It's because there's so many things up in the air. It's really Impossi- hard to do. It's impossible right. to do, but I actually think you could make a str- – and I don't want to – as we talk about the finals, I'd like to avoid the Kawhi leaving versus staying talk as right, much right. as possible because I'd really just like to have the finals over with before. I think we can both agree that them getting to the finals gives their – gives their chances of retaining him a significant jump and them having a good series slash winning increases it even more. But the Bucks actually look like the most, don't they look like the most, I think there's probably, I'd put them number one right now, pr- mm. probably, just because of the fact that if you give everyone else their worst case scenario, which is in Toronto, Kawhi leaving, that sh- torpedoes them to right, some right, extent. Right. The Celtics, I think Kyrie, Kyrie leaving. leaving puts them below the Bucks for sure. And we've seen that they may be below them, even with Kyrie saying. Right. And if Butler and uh, and Harris. Butler and Tobias Harris both leave, which I don't think will happen, but it's possible. I think when you look at the range of possible outcomes, like the median outcome is of the all best of them is the best for the Bucks. Yeah, and that makes sense. I guess I didn't. When thinking about that question and posing it, I didn't really think about the range of possibilities. And I think this the range of possibilities is all the other teams have the potential to lose really, really key pieces, whereas Giannis is like Kyrie's probably the best player on Boston and they have the potential to lose him. Toronto has Kawhi and they have the potential to lose him. So that if if that doesn't work out, that knocks him out. And then Philly without a bench. And if they end up losing Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris, it kind of what it brings that them back would be pretty wild, it I, would, right? Yeah. Exactly, especially with all the assets they gave up for both of those players. Yeah, it would be a really tough situation for them moving forward, trying to figure out the pieces b- around Ben Simmons and Embiid. So I think it's an interesting question to to ponder over as we finish up the finals and see what the offseason looks like. And it kind of sets up what what storylines to look for uh, during the offseason. And I think it that's why so many people get excited about all the possibilities of what can happen this offseason. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even mentioned, like, it would be interesting if you, like, took those four. Like, if you threw the Knicks in and had to predict that, like, which team would you rather be out of all those is is kind of right. a fascinating question right. also. And it's like, if all the things work out right, we can kind of see maybe five or six teams vying for the Eastern Conference title. And if, like, let's say if the Nets get lucky and then, you know, KD goes to New York, it you don't... It, it becomes really tough to determine who's the favorite in the East at that point. So yeah. Did you see Rick Buecher, who, like, is eh in terms of, like, how viable he is? Yeah, yeah. But he said apparently the two front runners for Kyrie are the Lakers and the Nets, which is... Fascinating. ...kind of an interesting... Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I don't know. Well, I've been on the Kyrie to the Lakers train, like, pretty heavily yeah. for a while, and yeah. I don't want to go too far the, like... We kind of talked about the Nets offseason and that possibility, yeah, yeah, but yeah. that would that would be a pretty interesting. For you sure. mentioned the D'Angelo kind of side and sign and trade yeah, idea, yeah. which you know would be. A, but like you said, basically the the offseason's going to be insane, mm-hmm. and I'm excited. Like our cover, we'll 
have a lot of coverage of that, but it just reiterates like having this discussion reiterates how much is up in the air for all of these teams. Remember, like the Celtics theoretically could improve. Like they could bring back Kyrie and trade for Anthony Davis. So right. like it's not it's not to say all three of those teams are, are destined to to get worse, but uh obviously the range of outcomes is huge and that's kind of the fascinating thing about the off season. Right, totally agree. So moving on to like what I think a lot of NBA fans say they look forward to, but maybe the offseason kind of has taken, I don't know, the attention of all NBA fans is the NBA final starts tomorrow. We're recording this on a Wednesday morning, afternoon, and it's it's crazy that there's been this much time and layoff. Like, we haven't seen basketball being played in five Close to a week, basically, five, six days. And it's, I, I don't know what you wanted to do in terms of, like, like do you want to give your prediction straight out? Nah, or I do think you, we do we that just at save the end. It at the Why end? don't I throw this question at you and okay. see what you, like, just what's, all right, let's just focus on the basketball. What's the one thing you're most looking forward to uh, on the court in this in this series? So, obviously, without KD being... It seems so. There are reports that he's traveled with the team yeah. for to Toronto for games one and two. Um, it seems like he's not playing game one. I think they already announced that he's not playing game one, and uh, Demarcus Cousins is questionable. I think the one thing that I'm looking forward to, like in the basketball sense of things, is the how how Toronto handles the pick and roll pick and roll of Curry and Draymond and who ends up guarding Draymond. And is it going to be Gasol, or is it going to be someone like Siakam or Kawhi, so that when there's a switch, um, inevitably when there's a switch between uh, Steph and Draymond defenders, is it going to be Kawhi defending Steph, where he probably could stay with him a little bit better in comparison to someone like Gasol? Um, and then it kind of brings up questions as to does Gasol end up, I don't know, like is he going to be good enough or quick enough to stay with Steph or are they going to trap? So I'm curious to see what the pick and roll coverages are for Toronto and how they deal with uh, Draymond uh, being the pick setter. So yeah, that th- that's going to be the interesting question for I me. think that uh, I think that's a, a pretty interesting question. As you mentioned, I mean – we haven't seen a team. I think Toronto has the best personnel out of any of these teams that have played the Warriors so far. Obviously, to defend, to defend them, especially with Durant out. Like actually, Durant playing would have kind of uh, almost simplified things a little bit more because it would have been like, okay, Kawhi's going to be on KD. Well, then there's still the Siakam Gasol question, but then like. Lowry's gonna probably be on Thompson and like Danny Green on Curry, and I'd love to talk about Danny Green later on because that's yeah. we were talking about that, and the more and more I think about it, the more I think they have to pretty much roll with Danny Green for the most part and see what happens. Mm-hmm. But um, like it would have simplified things a little bit more. You you could probably say, but you're you're right in like how they how they do that and. They probably they do have to have to switch. So 
maybe do you take that risk of putting like Kawhi on on Draymond and you have you know whoever else on on Curry be it Danny Green or whoever and switch it or do you roll with Siakam on uh or do you roll with Siakam or whoever I think you probably roll with Siakam on Draymond before Gasol I'm kind of skeptical of it depends what the what the Warriors do with lineup their starting wise, lineup yeah. as well, I'm gonna guess. Like, if I had to put my money on it, I'm gonna guess they'll just start. They're just gonna start Looney. I yeah. thought Looney has looked like their best option at center, minus minus Boogie Cousins, obviously throughout the playoffs. And I think Kerr's gonna be like he had been kind of giving other guys, be it um, be it uh, why am I Jordan mad? Bell? And yeah, be it Jordan Bell, be it Bogut, you know, right, right. be it. Even like Jacob Evans, they yeah, yeah. T- he tried that in a, a Blazer game to like disastrous results to kind of like spell Looney and let Looney Damian come in Jones off the bench. Too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think you'll just roll with Looney. Roll with Looney. But anyway, I b- I'm meandering around my point so much. I do wonder if Gasol, and this is why I think it's interesting, like. The KD, are they better with or without KD question I'm not so interested in, but are they better with or without Boogie Cousins is a question I'm pretty interested mm. And if Boogie is able to come back during this playoffs, during the finals, do you start him or bring him off the bench, I think is a fascinating question. Because, like, I think th- with Boogie Cousins on the floor, like, Gasol has some place to, to go, basically. Like, right, he's right. going to defend Boogie, and that's it, pretty much. Without him, like, the chances of him getting played off the floor, I think, just increase, increase, increase. And with KD back, like, the Hamptons 5 lineup yeah. definitely means Gasol probably can't be on the floor. But I think in the Blazers series and even in that last Rockets game, game six, you're able to see, like, centers, be it Canner or Capella, getting played off the floor. And sure, Gasol has a little bit more defensive versatility, and he can shoot threes, something Capella and Cantor couldn't do. But uh, I think Gasol's... How many minutes he's actually going to be able to play is an interesting question, and that impacts that who guards Draymond question a lot, too, I right. think. And I think if if Cousins ends up playing in the series, he's coming off the bench. Like, if if I'm Kerr, I'm probably pu- putting him or coming having him come off the bench and hopefully maybe taking advantage of that matchup against Serge Ibaka. Mm-hmm. And from there, I'm curious to see whether or not the Raptors end up kind of matching up Gasol with um, Cousins' minutes, maybe 20-ish a game. Yeah. And then... It ends up becoming, let's say Durant ends up coming back. What they do against that Hamptons five lineup, I I kind of think that Surge is going to be playing playing an, a more important role. Yeah, in this no, game you're because right. of the you're mobility yeah. and the versatility that. Yeah, he brings. I think that's a great point. And then, I mean, I also did want to get into the guards of uh, the Raptors and talk about Fred Van Vliet because he shot it crazy good like in the last like two or three games of that uh milwaukee series he shot i think i saw a stat uh somewhere that he shot it 14 out of 17 from three um in the last two or three games so it was kind of ridiculous as to how hot he was but i don't know i think he's gonna play less of a role in this 
series just because defensively I'm not exactly sure how he's going to be able to keep up unless you stick and and they're playing a lot of like two like small guard lineup with, with him and Lowry and I just don't know like where you put those guys defensively when the Warriors have Steph, Clay, Iggy on the floor. It seems like I guess the natural thing would probably be to put Van Vliet on um on Iggy yeah. and then put Lowry on Steph, but that that isn't that doesn't scream a favorable matchup to me and it seems like I think Van Vliet's going to be playing 15 to 20 minutes a game instead of the 25 to 30 that he was playing in that series. I completely agree with you and I think the thing you just highlighted is is why um, I think you just one. I think Danny Green's your best option on Steph as opposed to Lowry. I want Danny Green on Steph, even though that's not like necessarily perfect. He's older; he's not going to be able to n- chase through those screens he's as just longer, easily. Though. But he, yeah, and is just kind of regarded as a better defender. And I think you stick Lowry on on Clay. You know, he'll be able to. I mean, he'll be able to stick with him okay and. Clay isn't really going to be able to post him up or anything like that. So I think that's good. And the other thing I like about that option, as opposed to having Van Vliet out there, if you do that and you have Van Vliet on Iggy, uh, and kind of, I think you have the downgrade in that you have to put Lowry on Steph, but it also eliminates the possibility, something we didn't talk about with Gasol and maybe why I like Siakam on Draymond a little bit better, is you could theoretically stick Gasol on Iggy. Mm. And kind of hide him a little bit in that way, if, right. if you want. And I think there's a possibility that that gets tried at some point in this season, right? In this series. And I think that's an interesting point because Iggy has been, and I think this has been understated. Um, he's been really good for Golden State, mm-hmm. um, shooting from the outside, three point percentage wise. He's, I think, he shot somewhere close to like thirty seven, thirty eight. 38% around um, from three. I'm, I'm not exactly sure on the number. I guess maybe you could look that up. Um, but he he's kind of looked fairly good um, shooting it from the outside. And if he and he's one of those players that's a streaky shooter. And if Gasol's put on Iggy and he ends up, he starts struggling with I guess his three or his outside shooting, then maybe Gasol plays a little bit off of him to provide a little bit more rim protection for Toronto. And I think that could get really interesting if one of those guys get ends up getting cold, especially Draymond or Iggy, because then you'll start to see defensively the changes that Toronto ends up making. And it, it it's a really hard matchup. Anyone that plays the Warriors, they're kind of in this, I don't know, they, it, it becomes extremely hard f- to defend this team because it becomes this, okay, we can't give this outside give these outside shots, but then with the amount of space that's on the floor, you're giving up layups and cuts, back cuts, backdoor cuts, all this type of stuff. So it's this balance between defending and defending the the basket and the interior and then also balancing that with all right, we got to stem the outside shooting. So yeah. it, it's it's a really hard balance. Agreed. And I think a thing if people are listening who were like 
a little less who kind of look at things not that we're like gigantic huge great player scouts who watch film and stuff like that but i think a thing to a point to make to the casual fan who's like kind of looking into the series is all the stuff about like oh who who on the raptors should guard who on the on the warriors like it's not even so much about that. Some t- the fact of the matter is those guys aren't going... A bunch of different guys are going to end up guarding a bunch of different guys. Because of especially all the switches. Uh, yeah. yeah, because of how much screening the Warriors use and how... Yeah, exactly. How often you have to chase guys off, off kind of these flares and stuff like that. D- you know, it, Zach Lowe kind of put it... Uh, very eloquently like you basically have to do everything against the warriors like you know yeah. what i mean you Play have, a perfect like you can't game. take away this you can't take away that you have to pretty much do everything and sometimes you'll do everything and and, and you know still this lose, is a, yeah. yeah and this is kind of almost it's it's a thing to mention and it's also simultaneously kind of a thing that everybody knows that they're such a well-oiled machine so you know their ability to do that you know is in you know Kawhi's probably going to end up on g- guys one through five at varying aspects right. during the season during the series. I don't know why I keep saying <laughs> season instead of series. So those and seeing how Nick Nurse will kind of manage that or what their more broadly tactical um, tactical strategies are going to be is interesting because also these teams haven't really played each other. In the past few years, it's been like, all right, it's the Cavs versus the Warriors again, and we can kind of go back to yeah, previous and we, finals. But and this see. year, like, there was only one game, I think, where both Kawhi and, like, even, like, Steph and Draymond both played. So there's a figuring, lot of, figuring right. that personnel stuff's interesting. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to shift to the Toronto... Toronto offensively the Toronto side of things okay. because I'd, I'd like to bounce this idea off you that this is a Zach Lowe point that I thought was interesting Kawhi's ability to kind of rep let's look at the one uh the one final series that that the Warriors have lost and in that series you saw LeBron kind of pounding the rock slowing the game down when the when the Cavs had the ball and Kawhi's ability to maybe replicate that, his ability to basically pound it for twenty seconds, um, and <laughs> uh, and uh, get a good shot in isolation, and you know, and make it. Uh, what do you make of that kind of comparison, or and how do you see Kawhi? You know, what do you see his best role on offense for in this in this series? Yeah, and I. I mean, I think with Kawhi, the way I see him, I I think it's going to be a lot of that. I think it's going to be a lot of, like, slowing the pace down as much as possible, try to limit the transition um, game for the Warriors because they're so deadly when they're in transition. And if Toronto's able to get enough players back, I don't know if they'll offensive rebound as much in the, on this game or in this series, just so that they have enough defenders back to defend the transition game. I think it's going to be a lot of Toronto, uh, Toronto giving the ball to Kawhi. All right, let's see what you can... <laughs> like, basically, let's see what you can do. And in isolation, he's been really solid. Um, even his... I, I think I read a stat somewhere that he's shooting 55% from 
mid-range twos. So I think they'll take a lot of he'll take advantage of that um, type of thing. It's going to be really tough for that for him. And I think it's like a lot of what we saw in the Milwaukee series of someone like Kyle Lowry is going to have to step for up. Sure. And it's going to be extremely tough because I'm assuming they're going to put clay on. I, I don't know. Na- I think I, I it's going to be Draymond would be my guess to start. Yeah. I, on, um, on Kawhi. Yeah. Because I just, th- mm, interesting. I, I, or no, 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 no. I don't. I think it's actually going to be Iggy, 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 Iggy to yeah, start yeah. with, with some Dray. I think Draymond is the best, is the best defender for the best option for Kawhi. But I think, uh, Draymond, like, They'll put him on uh, Siakam. I think yeah. the problem with uh, putting Draymond on Kawhi is that you don't have enough size to really guard Siakam effectively. And putting Draymond on Siakam allows him to kind of sag and play center fielder a little bit right. more. So right. I think that that's where they'll, where they'll go to start. I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I don't know why I said that. But yeah, no, no. And I think Siakam hasn't shot it well enough from the outside to prove that he's going to be... To prove that he's going to be effective from the outside to the point where Draymond, like you were saying, can sag off of him a little bit and play that free safety type of role in that defense for Golden State. Like, it's going to be a lot of just Kawhi getting the ball, counting down from five, four, three, two, jack up a shot and see if it goes in and hopefully they. By can the way, which has been incredibly efficient offense and, and in this he, playoffs. Like, he's you, been that can't really be good at it. Enough. He's been yeah. really good at it. Um, but I think they're, I mean, with the way Toronto plays, I wonder how well Kyle Lowry is going to be able to step. He played decently well in that Milwaukee series and, like, Clay's probably going to be on him um, with Steph being on Danny Green. And Danny Green played awful last series offensively, and he just could not shoot the ball. Um, so I wonder, like, the Norm Powell, Van Vliet, slash, if Ananobi comes back, I'm curious to see which one of those role players ends up stepping up. Last series, it was Fred Van Vliet. It could be Ibaka also. Right. I mean, Ibaka, you talk about, people talk about, you know, Gasol hitting his threes so often, but when Ibaka's out there, there's a possibility he's going to have to play that stretch five role and and take and make some threes as well, so I think you're absolutely right. Like, basically, they're not going to win the series, I don't think, unless Lowry plays at a similar level to, to last series, but I think those players collectively may even have to play better than they did in the Buck, in the Buck series right, to, right. to do enough. Yeah, and I mean... The thing is, like, Kawhi can be the best player in this series. For sure. Especially if KD is not 100% at all. So it's it's not a question of, like, if Kawhi can do it. It's more like I... Even if he plays at his best, I don't even know if Toronto is able to win game. Like, he can play... He can shoot it 35, 40 times score 45 points and still lose the game no that's true i'm a little bit more high i think i'm a little bit higher on the on the rappers chances to win this series than you are just because for one thing i don't i'll say now i don't see kd or boogie even if they come back being a huge factor in the series okay i think that the way things have just kd's timetable and how this injury has been treated i 
I'll say this for sure. KD's injury and like the timetable and how this has been treated makes me think that if he comes back, even at any point in the series, like they're rushing him back and his ability to like come in and reach that level of like ha- what he was doing prior to going down. I think that's m- near impossible, like mm. that chance. So I that is kind of one side of it. And then Boogie... I've kind of laid out before him coming back like, yes, it makes them offensively more deadly. But I think matchup wise and defensively, like in terms of having somewhere to attack defensively, like if Boogie comes back every time he's on the floor, like roll. I'm putting him in pick and roll yeah. pretty much every single time I want. Kawhi switching on, like I want Boogie Cousins switching on to Kawhi and attacking that all day long. Yeah. So for one thing, that kind of drops things a little bit in my book. And just, I do think that this formula, like there is a formula there kind of laid out by that Cavs team. And I think it is possible and more, I still am picking the Warriors to win this series, but I think it is possible that that blueprint is replicated to some extent. And I think Lowry and those role players have the a bit I think they do need to play really well and I think the chances of it happening are less than fifty percent for sure. But I do think there is the possibility that they do enough. Yeah, and I mean I think this is almost the perfect storm for Toronto. If mm-hmm. they're gonna it like if they're gonna win an NBA's NBA finals, like with KD being hurt. How do you feel about that? Well, I was wondering also about wh- about, about KD. Wh- what role I kind of said how I factor those guys into my thinking of like in terms of predictions and stuff like that. What how do you prognosticate in regard well, to that? It's so difficult it, to do obviously. It, it really is cuz I'm curious to see what type of role he does have when he comes back because is he 100% when he comes back or is he like 85%, 80 even lower than that. And I wonder if there it becomes this strange like tension between him having the ball in his hands and maybe, you know, we're accustomed to seeing KD have the ball in his hands, take a couple dribbles, pull up from 27 feet and everyone's like okay with that cuz he's Kevin Durant. Yeah. But if he's less than 100% and then you have guys like Curry Clay and um, Draymond on the floor, and when they could run pick and roll really effectively and have this motion type of offense that a lot of these NBA commentators are talking about, and that being a lot more effective, I'm curious. To, I'm just kind of curious to see that, like, what takes hold. And maybe it depends how the series is going. You yeah, know what I mean? If they true. come out of there with a 1 1 split and it's looking like the Raptors can't. Like hang at all? Yeah. Then maybe they like just maybe kind you're of like, like, well, let's wait and see what happens. Which kind of seems crazy to I, say that to Kevin Durant. Right. But I think it gets interesting. Let's say going into Game Four, it's two one Raptors and yeah. what they do there. Because I I wouldn't I honestly wouldn't be surprised if if this series goes to seven and even if the Ra- like I think the Raptors have the best shot of beating the Warriors since uh, like even even before that cat even before the Cavs came back to win against the Warriors like I don't think it I think it's going to be a really close series basically I don't I don't think it's going to be walkover even last season when 
you know, J.R. Smith, all that type of stuff ended up happening with the Cavs. I just never thought the Cavs realistically had a chance against that Warriors team, whereas especially with some of the injuries that have happened with the Warriors, I give the Raptors, I would say, 20% chance of winning and pulling it out. Um, I don't think they're going to do it. Like, I guess we can get into predictions Yeah, I think we moved to predictions. Right, right. I I have the Warriors in six. I think that's a really popular... um, popular prediction in terms of the Warriors closing it out at home. They And that's another key point, too. They don't have home court yes. in this series. So um, playing the first two games in Toronto, I'm curious. I wonder if Toronto's like if Toronto's Toronto has to come away minimum with the split, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if there's a little bit more added pressure on Toronto to come out and play really well especially with them knowing that both of those games are at home and them having to travel to game uh to Oracle for games 3 and 4 it be I I think it adds a little bit more pressure on them especially for game 1 um and not that one game defines a series but I think for this Toronto series it's imperative for them to get off to a good start especially against I think this Warriors machine that's that they've become. I agree, and I'll actually take it a step further the more I think about it. I'm not going to get... I'm not going to believe the Toronto Raptors can win this series. Unless they go Unless they up. win two, uh, the first two, yeah. Mm. Um, I'm also going with Warriors and Six. I just thought it would be an interesting thing to mention. Although I did, in effect, bail on my Toronto to the finals pick at the beginning of last series, um, I think still what I put down on paper count you know what i mean no, yeah, like yeah, i yeah. still think it does it does count i think i definitely lose some uh some reputation points for saying i didn't think it was going to happen but at the end of the day that is what i predicted but i think it sh- it's interesting mention we both picked the toronto raptors before the playoffs to go to the nba finals uh which was that the majority opinion you no, think or do you think, think the bucks was were so i think, think, were, were, so I I think, think even a, philly buzz too and i think and i think i have to give us credit like to some extent we saw this coming uh, we've for a been while. saying toronto's the best team to to face the warriors since pretty much like halfway through the regular season yeah, we've been i would say so we've them. been we've been on that train for a while but i will say that we both picked Golden State in six over the Toronto Raptors as our finals prediction prior to the playoffs, and I'm sticking with it. I'm going. I'm going with the Warriors in in six as well. Uh, I just don't see. Honestly, I think def- there are actually going to be some games where it's more grinded out than you would think. One thing to mention yeah. about the Raptors, like slowing the pace down and stuff like that, that's not something they have a. In the playoffs, they do have some experience with it, but the Raptors, for the most part, have actually been a team that wants to get out and transition and see, wants to right, speed right. things up. So I think that playing that style won't necessarily be as easy for them as mm. as as they think. However, I think there will be some grinded out kind of slug slugfest games in this series. And at the end of the day, I think the Warriors are going to... Kawhi Leonard's pretty much been able to handle everything you have thrown at him whether it's like not doubling doubling all this other stuff you know trapping him on the pick and roll you know switching etc 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 i think he'll stay pretty solid but i think at the end of the day 
I'm not sure those other guys are going to be able to totally do enough. Agree. And especially once you get away from Toronto, and that's why I think, and that's why I think, uh, why I make that point about I think the Toronto. Raptors have to win the first two games to have mm. a chance in this series because I think you need those Van Vliet's, your Danny Greens. Remember, Danny Greens in a historically bad slump right now, but he's also one of the best shooters in NBA Finals history. Yeah. So those two tensions kind of playing with each other is interesting, and that's why I think them having home court advantage is actually really good for them in the sense that like it gives them the chance to. Those role players historically play better at home during these series. So giving Danny Green a chance to be in front of a home crowd and maybe get going, giving Van Vliet a chance to maybe keep his role going and uh, his role going, yes, role both R-O-L-L and R-O-L-E going, and then like Norm Powell, Yurabakas. Like I think if they can get up to a good start and build up their confidence, you have a shot. Mm-hmm. But I think the more likely outcome is that not being able to sustain itself over. And maybe we're discounting Lowry. Like maybe Lowry really shows something. And I think he did show something during that Buck series. He, he did, yeah. I think he shed that kind of playoff underperformer title mantle pretty well in, in the Buck series. But uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, the more likely outcomes. I would give Toronto a little bit of a better chance. I would put it probably around 25 to 30 percent chance okay. they win the series but uh yeah i think i think i'm going with golden state and six yeah yeah and i'm in i'm in pretty much agreement there the go- i think the pace thing was interesting you kind of see lowry like in most he really wants to push it like he's always literally like once a team scores he's like standing yes. there like clapping his hands yes. like i need the ball i need the ball so we can push it up up the court so uh, i think that's interesting and it's not like Golden State. Like, Golden State is known for their pace, but when it does get to the finals, and when I think back to these those series against Cleveland, like, there are a lot of games where they're in the 90s, where they're grinded out games. And, and, and I think that was a product of Cleveland being very deliberate in the way they played pace-wise to slow the game down and kind of force Golden State to become this this team that slows it down and i i think that's going to be ultimately beneficial to toronto if they can do that effectively because of how effective uh Kawhi is um in the half court in in pulling up from mid-range to point percentage wise um that that i mentioned before is if if they're able to do that Kawhi is going to be able be the focal point of that offense for Toronto and efficiency wise that if they're able to limit the amount of possessions and most of the shots are going to Kawhi then I like Toronto's chances a little bit more I just don't I I don't know if Toronto has enough um just role players wise and I think that we're pretty much in agreement with that and it's funny how we have an outside of Iggy well, and Looney, we haven't mentioned any of those. Like, we haven't mentioned Alfonso McKinney or these people who will probably have to play significant Sean minutes. Sean Livingston's been Yeah, who will have to play right. if Durant and uh, Durant and uh, Boogie don't come back. But obviously, neither of us think that really matters that much. Right, right. <laughs> I, I, I just don't think it matters that much when you're going to probably play 
this is why Iggy's kind of rested throughout the regular. He's yeah. probably going to be playing 35 minutes a game, 35 yeah. to 40. Like, and then Draymond, Clay, and Steph, they're po- probably playing close to 40. So you just need to patch together uh, the remaining minutes with guys like Alfonso McKinney, who's been pretty – like some of these role players have been – Looney, McKinney specifically have been decent. Livingston's kind of been eh. For them I think he's th- been worse than right. eh, honestly. Uh, yeah, exactly. So he's not been great for them this postseason. So and there's a lot of talk that he might retire at the end of this season. So it's and you know all you need right now if you're Tor- if you're a Toronto fan if one of the big three gets ankle turn yeah. you know something like that ends up happening then you're really in the driver's seat. So you just never know what ends up happening, and that's why. I think taking a bigger outlook on this series, it's like, yeah, Katie's not in this game or is hurt. Now DeMarcus is hurt as well, and there's questions as to whether they come back. That's why I think you kind of, whenever you see challengers for the Warriors, you just never know what ends up happening injury-wise, and that's the greatest, I guess, X factor in terms of whether or not people we'll keep the band together yeah. per se to see um, whether they challenge the Warriors. And, you know, with K- all the KD drama that we didn't really even touch upon, um, whether he stays or goes, I think the landscape of the NBA is going to look a lot more different. And I, I'm actually very – I'm really – I would be very curious to see w- if KD leaves, like – who do you even peg as the favorite for next year and all that type of stuff? Yeah. Um, because I th- I think there's going to be a lot more parity in the league where obviously there's going to be the top teams, um, top teams there, but there's still going to be what? Like I would say s- six to eight teams where you're just like, yeah, any of those teams could win it. Yeah. No, agreed. And I don't have like any major thoughts on that. But just kind of to put a bow uh, to to reiterate one thing you said, I th- from earlier I do think even though we both pick Golden State in six, which is probably the most boring outcome, I think it's going to be a close. Series. I do think you yeah. made the point. Like, I actually think this is the most intriguing finals matchup of this recent Batch Warriors of, run, right. even more than the one that Cleveland won. Like you said. Yeah. This is probably the one I'm most excited to watch just from a pure basketball perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of laid that out just in terms of the number of variables as it pertains to KD and and uh, and cousins and in those kind of like those matchup flexibility things like in those Cavs days, like it was always just kind of like, well. LeBron is Kyrie. LeBron gonna yeah like you know what I mean whereas kind of there are these these more interchangeable pieces on this on this Toronto team that's kind of more interest like seeing how that'll play out I think there there's more up in the air than there ever was before and I think the point you made I don't really have much of a thought on like the KD stuff beyond what we've talked about in the past and we talked about the kind of ter- t- possible turmoil in the East but this is like a really like the point you made, like this is an inflection point in like recent NBA history for sure. Like, I think we will look back on this series, and there's going to be some, whether it's like this was the end of the Warriors' run, 
maybe this was the start of a Kawhi in Toronto run. Like maybe it's not like how this season, this Raptor season will be viewed if Kawhi leaves will be fascinating. The right. idea that this is on the table, the idea that Kawhi Leonard wins a championship in Toronto and then leaves that would be on insane. the table. That would be insane. Like I was thinking about this the other day and like, what do the Raptors do? Like, does he get a statue? If he wins one series, like right. one championship, brings a championship to Toronto and, and then, then ditches them, yeah, like that—that's that idea is in- incredible to me. And then like the idea of like the player movement that'll possibly happen after this, you know, well, okay, the Warriors won and then Co- KD went to the Knicks or like what have you, like is still fairly interesting. That's, so and I think this is a historical yeah. moment in NBA history and I'm excited to see how it plays out. Yeah, and I think um, from previous seasons, like with all the player movement post-finals is fascinating. Like the Kyrie move is still like... Yeah. So intriguing to me um, to see, like, he wants his own team. And, like, the fact that Kawhi has his own team in Toronto, the Toronto fans love him. He can own – like, he could be, like, prime minister one day (laughs) if he ended up – like, he legitimately probably could. Um, All the – like, him owning Canada, like, all the ploys to keep him in Canada, in Toronto with – free like Kawhi can eat here for free like all the little like badges and stuff like that that all these restaurants have up like paying for free condos like this Toronto team er, and city have really fallen in love with Kawhi and ideally I would love him to stay but it's obviously not my decision to make but Toronto's really received him well and he has his own team now it's not and I think if he moves to L.A., a lot of there's a lot of rumors going on about him going to the Clippers. If he moves there, he has to rebuild this thing again. Not that, like, there's a structure in place here mm-hmm. uh, for him in Toronto, and they could kind of bring it back and see, like, what ends up happening with them. And maybe they go on a, a little bit of a mini run um for the next couple of years i think it's going to be tougher for them but it'll be fascinating to see agreed so i guess putting so wrapping up i guess we both have golden state um instead in six so should we predict like finals mvp or yeah, something? yeah let's predict finals MVP. i haven't literally thought of this for a second so i looked at the odds and it seems pretty obvious steph is the favorite Number two actually is Kawhi at plus 275, which... I think that honestly makes sense because I think the idea is, like, if Toronto wins, like, it's a... There's... What are the chances that if Toronto wins, Kawhi isn't the MVP? It it seems, like, close to zero, pretty much. And then then further down, it's Clay and Draymond at at 9-1. So, I mean, the usual suspects, obviously... I don't know. It's it just seems like it's gonna be Steph's, but he's in previous finals. It seems like he's faltered a bit. Like he has he won a Finals MVP since I'm trying to think now. Has he ever won one? Isn't that like a thing that right, he's right. ever won one? Yeah, yeah. I I don't think he's ever won one. I'm trying to think. Like Iggy won that first one, and then Katie's won the last couple. Yeah, I right? don't think so he has. I don't think he's won one. So it's gonna be. I think. I think this is the 
cherry on top of the Sunday if Steph is able to kind of win the MVP. But he's he's shown to like struggle a little bit in the finals in terms of his shooting numbers. And he hasn't I think a lot of people kind of say, oh, he hasn't been that main guy that's really carried the Warriors um, in the finals, specifically in the final series, not like in the playoffs, but in the finals specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I could kind of see Draymond like if you if you're a betting guy, like it seems like the Warriors are pretty heavily favored to win. And usually I think only Jerry West has won um, the finals MVP on a losing team. So that possibility seems like out of the question. So if you're if you want some like a surprise pick, I think maybe you go Draymond. That was what was I haven't thought about it that much, but that was what was um sticking out in my head also. Or maybe like if I was like had to put ten dollars on someone, apparently Iguodala's like one hundred twenty-five to one or something Just like bring that. It and yeah, ten if, bucks. I think yeah. there's a situation where KD and Boogie don't come back, and in that case, it's possible that Iguodala would be like a huge linchpin to them winning a series. Like maybe he plays incredible defense Deep. on Kawhi, and averages you know, like eighteen points. Yeah, a game or something like that, and maybe maybe you see that happening. That would two-time Finals MVP. That would Andre. be wild. That would be... He's in the Hall of Fame at For that sure. Moment, right? Yeah. yeah. So that would be crazy. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just seems... Like, the odds make sense. I, I think it's going to... Per- personally, I think it's going to be Steph. Um, I think he ends up getting it. I think he's super motivated to actually win it because he has... It. This is probably the one award that he hasn't won yet. He's won MVP. He's won, he's won the championship three times now. Um... Now and then it can and he can end up winning three straight fine uh finals plus have the MVP in that capping third final. I I think that would put a nice bow Agreed. on this story. Yeah. Um, especially if KD leaves. So Agreed. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like Steph is gonna take it, and I yeah, I'm just like I think the finals is why we watch basketball and the. Like in th- at the beginning of the year, we pretty much knew it was going to be Golden State in the finals, but the journey, the process, and all that type of stuff to get to the finals is far more interesting yeah. to to follow than the actual end result. And I think the playoffs on the whole, this has maybe been the best. Oh, we'll see what happens in the finals. But yeah, if I it, hope if we don't it get a as good. Of the yeah, if it is as if it is tight, even if it's Golden State and six, as we've if there are like four good games in there, I think this will have been the best overall. I mean, maybe I'm biased because the Portland Trailblazers made it to the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, but I think this will have been maybe the most entertaining NBA playoffs in in like the last as. In the last at least five years, I would say. Well, and I think the variability uh, in the East kind of made that really nice because in previous three seasons, it was just like, all right, Cleveland and Golden State. And it became Uh, super boring, honestly. It was just like, all right, can we get like, and I think that's why people don't really like this Golden State team because of the boring nature of of all the storylines that they bring in terms of, all right, they're good. Like, what else do you do you want us to say about them? And same with Cleveland in the East in terms of LeBron kind of guiding them through the East and 
it, it not even being close in the East. So it, it's nice to have a change and this variability of like we don't really know who is going to come out of the East. I think it was a really big toss up between those four teams that we mentioned before as to who ended up coming out. And that's why it's been a really exciting playoffs yeah. and two buzzer beater like series ending um, shots were unbelievable that I'll remember where I was like watching those games. So it like those two defining moments in conjunction with like that surprise element has really made this NBA playoffs enjoyable for me at least. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. I guess like moving on. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think we did. I mean, we had close I, to an hour on, I think you know, this, the, justice, this yeah. playoff last so, couple playoff developments. Right. So. And I think me and Andrew will, if there's something like extremely surprising during the finals, we'll probably come up, come back. To yeah, if it's next like week. tied two two in right, game right. four or something like that, right? You know, and maybe. like Katie's still not back or something, we'll probably come back and talk more about the finals. Um, but there's a couple other topics that we wanted to touch upon before we closed out this podcast, and it was, I mean, I think. Like, we have <laughs> to kind of bring it up because, like, it's become this thing on yeah. our podcast now is the Lakers <laughs> <laughs> bar rescue story. And it, it was hilarious because I'm on YouTube, and I don't know how they do this, but I'm on YouTube, and on my suggested right-sided videos was bar rescue John Tafford, just, like, these two- to three-minute clips going from, like, each bar just like him reaming out different people and and i just got addicted probably over the past like three days of me just like banging out like these three minute clips of him just going off on these people and i'm like geez like restaurants can be really disgust like they can be <laughs> disgusting like yeah. and like you'd see like some really like unsavory stuff of, of like, course husbands like hitting on female patrons when their wife is there and yeah. them being clearly like way too way too drunk. So yeah, there's a lot of uh alcoholism mingling in these in those things as a it's bar kind of, rescue aficionado. Oh it's of course it is. Sad, of course. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the state of what the Lagers have looked yeah. like. It's honestly sad to kind of yeah. witness what this story franchise has become. And I, I mentioned at the top back the Baxter Holmes piece and there's honestly there's not much that has changed. Do you want me to? I can summarize. Right. It. Why don't you? Basically, it's just it. that like okay, Magic Johnson, bad. Rob Belinka, <laughs> bad. Rich Paul, bad. Genie Bus, bad. Like it's basically like everyone. Hey, it's important to take one thing with a grain of salt. I thought. Um, and not to say that disgruntled employee, ex-employees shouldn't be trusted, like that's a very dangerous precedent to set, but it should be noted that a lot of Holmes' sourcing seems to come from people who were fought. Because a thing that I learned in this story that I thought was interesting was like how much turnover, how much right, employee turnover, especially it. as it c pertains to kind of like the executives who, like, you don't hear about, you know, trainers, kind of, like, administrative assistants, stuff like that. I thought it was interesting how much... Because you think of, like, even under the 
Palinka magic regime, you think like the Lakers family and stuff like that. So how many people have actually been fired was was surprising to me. And it seems like a lot of his reporting was sourced from people who have been fired from the Lakers. So I think you have to take like disgruntled ex-employees with a grain of salt. Totally, Although totally. some of the things you heard about, like I thought this was pretty ins- insane. Like employees like the culture being so bad that like people were like having panic attacks and having to be prescribed with like medication I'm laughing, yeah. but like Anti-anxiety it's kind of wild right. to hear that um i started to go off but like the fact that all of these basically every bat like we've talked about this so many times and every bad characterization of these people that we've like made they all seem to be pretty much true. And everyone's like, it truly does. As I mentioned on this last podcast, like when we were kind of, cause I don't want to do another, like summarize the Lakers culture and how right, it should right. change, but it really just did exemplify this like idea that like the culture isn't, was in, is and was incredibly toxic and everyone had a role in it. Magic Johnson being this kind of half, like being both simultaneously incredibly controlling and, absent like that seems to be true right, right. rob palinka being like a sociopath basically is basically true genie bus being unable to rein any of these people in is completely true and then the last thing i the one insight i got was like we know that lebron and rich paul are like domineering types who like lord over these franchises and insert themselves where they probably shouldn't be inserted. But one thing I thought was interesting was like how this fetid Lakers culture allowed them to even kind of sneak in in more ways than usual. Yeah. And their inability to insulate them, like Rich Paul being on the team plane, which apparently is like super unprecedented. Like right. agents are never like him being involved and not necessarily in the decision making and proce- process but being a presence like especially f- even for like other players like your Brandon Ingrams and your you know the the uh the veteran guys like having to have this presence like be involved in that kind of contributing possibly to the pressure you feel as a player on the Lakers uh, I thought was really interesting and something I maybe hadn't seen the full extent to, but now I'm rambling. You know, basically, I think, yeah, every bad thing we thought about the Lakers is true. That's what I took away yeah. from this piece. No, yeah, and it. I mean, I think it's interesting to have like some perspective on it, like taking it, taking all the stuff with a grain of salt, especially taking things from disgruntled ex-employees to, you know. It's tough because these people have been let go by by management. And some. I mean, there was things where, like, there was that story about that lady that worked there for two decades yeah. and basically resigned. Like, she made one mistake. Like, she forgot to arrange a car service for a draft, for prospect. A draft prospect. And Magic was, like, screaming at her in his office or something like that. Yeah, so... I suggest everybody, if this... What we're saying, because we're kind of just pulling stuff out... That Baxter Holmes piece, it's a little lengthy, but it's definitely worth at least a skim. There are like at least seven like incredible anecdotes. The Heath Ledger. Including right. the Heath Ledger story. Yeah. yeah. So I it it just kind of points to all the dysfunction that's going on with the Lakers and how they did things um that weren't you know, I think everyone kind of knew what was happening, especially if you follow the NBA. Like 
they everyone knew that there was dysfunction going on with the Lakers, but I think this actually added the specificity with like all the stories um, coming from different sources, um, all the different examples of why they're dysfunction dysfunctional, and it just kind of was like, all right, now we know what some of the specific examples are, and you know everyone's kind of going on their little media thing like. Magic's going on his media tour, yeah. denying everything. Rob Plinka in response at press conferences for uh, Frank Vogel being like, oh, I'm so sad. Rob Palinka's like, allow me to quote Mozart as I right. make myself Ex- look like more of a fucking asshole than I... Or the Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 just funny to kind of see, like, all this stuff. Like, everyone's, like, posturing and seeing, yeah. like, how, how can I make myself look the best genie genie bus hasn't really even addressed it'll be much. interesting to see don't you think we're due for like a ramona shelburne like sit down genies, interview yeah or like an article like kind of like from genie's perspective like oh no maybe you know what i mean like yeah, she her spinning this in some sort of way like how she was betrayed by magic like her friend or right, something right. like that i i, I totally think that's that. the last piece of the puzzle we need to get here yeah totally and then i thought the shadow owner stuff was interesting like the linda rambis yeah. who who's the wife of kurt rambis and like basically <laughs> i don't know it's there was this huge scandal in south korea with the president and they were talking about shadow shadow mm. leader type of stuff and and I, I, my mind immediately went to that. So it, it was really fascinating how like friends of Genie Bus have her ear about about business that they aren't directly involved with. And it, I, I don't know how the Lakers really fix this unless they end up start and they end up winning like yeah immediately yeah. so like i don't and obviously winning fixes a lot of things and cures all but i wonder what ends up happening to get on that path of winning yeah. um and yeah there's a lot of questions that remain and we'll probably address it later on in the off season um especially with that anthony davis trade piece to fall so we'll see what ends up happening with that domino uh, but we uh, we had to give our five to ten minutes on the Lakers. And I wanted to say one more thing. We had a long conversation on the last podcast about, like, the Lakers' organizational structure and what, if anything, we thought they could do to fix it on the last podcast. So I don't want to rehash that again. But I just want to reiterate, like, that I don't see this getting better in any sort of way. I think, like... A, a thing to take from this Baxter home piece, Holmes piece is that this system is set up to almost bring out the worst in everybody. Totally. And I think that, like, we're just going to continue to see a revolt, like Magic being gone or even, like, Rob Palinka being gone if he, like, got fired early on in the season or something. I don't see this getting better. Like, you brought up the Rambuses. Now you're bringing in Vogel and Jason Kidd. Like, it's almost like this revolving door of, like, just, like, awful personalities. And I just think think this process will continue to play itself out over and over again without some sort of major structural change it was so funny the fact that like they were calling it like lakers 2.0 at the beginning <laughs> like of the and i think uh i think I think without moving to Lakers 3.0, like a complete drastic overhaul of things, the only thing that will solve things as you mentioned is basically I think you need to rely on 
a force outside of the organizational structure itself, which is winning, basically. Right, and I think it's really fascinating, like, the stat of, like, the last three or four years uh, between the Knicks and the Lakers. They're tied for the league lead in most losses, which is, like, I, I don't think the Lakers, and I think r- until recently, the Lakers weren't getting as much bad... I guess, press about how bad of an organization they were in comparison to um, what the Knicks had is, uh, and the Knicks ownership group and all that type of dysfunction because of maybe LeBron coming to the Lakers and that assuaging a lot of like the fears that were going on with the Lakers. It was just a lot of like, oh, now we have LeBron. Everything's going to be okay. And, and, now with the first season of LeBron kind of tanking and going in the toilet, that really changed a lot of things. So it's, I, it, yeah, I don't really see much of a change happening unless they start winning next season and make the playoffs. And then everything becomes like, oh, yeah, like this is the team we thought we could have had um, if LeBron stayed healthy. Yep, agreed. So the last topic of the day that – I wanted to touch upon, and I, I, I don't think a lot of NBA, f- and I don't think a lot of the listeners uh, of this podcast will really be attuned to it. Um, RJ Hampton, who's this very highly uh, regarded high school uh, basketball player who had offers from, I believe, Kansas, Kentucky, like all the usual Blue blood. Yeah, I know Texas Tech was one of his like top three or something right, like right. that. So like all the traditional powers and even the new powers in Texas Tech um, decided to go abroad and play for this New Zealand basketball team in the Australian basketball. The Ramblers league. is that? I, the I think I think I believe okay, it's the hold Ramblers, on. but yeah, Andrew's like pulling it know. out right now. Um, so it's. We, I the New Zealand Breakers, I'm okay, sorry. The, the breakers. I think the Ramblers are like a Canadian football league team, and right. maybe that. Or, uh, yeah. I, I feel Whatever, like, it's yeah. fine. So, the reason why I wanted to bring this up, I think, not for specifically to talk about RJ Hampton, because he's a like a highly regarded high school player, and I don't know much about him at all. I think it's it's an interesting way, and I think it's a microcosm of what, might end up happening in the future of maybe some of these highly regarded high school players uh, playing abroad. And it's not like we haven't seen it. We, t- Me and Andrew were go- texting back and forth last night about potential topics to talk about um, on the podcast. And we were talking about this story and saying, well, we've kind of seen it with Brandon Jennings and Emmanuel Moutier uh, going abroad for a year for going college and then going and then getting drafted um, in the NBA draft, but I think a lot more focus is being placed on this story as a, I guess, start to a lot of changes for maybe college basket or potential college basketball recruits going abroad and seeing whether or not they can circumvent this. And then ultimately this might not even matter in two to three years because of the rule change for the NBA uh, changing back to 18. So I, I maybe it's not 
as big of a story as people are well, making it out to be. Well, what do you make of be? it? Because I thought we had some interesting thought. I, I'm interested to see what your thoughts are on it as more of a kind of broad... Is it a harbinger of things to come, or is it closer to that Moody A. Jennings isolated incident? And then I'd also like to kind of hear you set up your idea of, like, why players go might go to college. Because we had some different thoughts on right, that right. that I'd like to hash out on the podcast, too. So... I mean, my idea on it is I think there's a couple more players that will do it, but I don't think it's going to be this wholesale change of, like, I don't think you're going to see, like, 10 of the top 20 players um, ranked in high school basketball going abroad and playing. I just don't see that er as realistic. I mean, you have to remember these kids are 18 years old, trying to live in a foreign country, and Australian Basketball League's, okay but it's by no it's by no means like the european leagues where change of cult like australia i think is an easier jump than playing for a team in spain sure. or a team in france or germany with the language barrier and all the cultural differences i think australia is a little bit more palatable and new zealand's a little bit like the the culture's not that big of a jump in comparison to going to France or Germany or Spain. So I don't know if you'll see that much of a difference in terms of players going there, even though the money is really attractive for them. And the one point that I did want to set up that we were talking about going back and forth was the idea of player recognition and name recognition um, for college players. And I think you kind of see that um, with Zion Williamson, but even some of the other one-and-done guys, like, people know who Cam Reddish is. People know who R.J. Barrett is. Like, you see some of these guys that I would say if they were to go... Like, for example, let's say R.J. Barrett were to go abroad um, instead of have, having gone to Duke. His player profile isn't good enough, I would say, for him to be covered on a day-to-day -day basis and being like okay, let me see how he's doing on the New Zealand breakers. And, like, I don't know if SportsCenter or ESPN would have given him that wall-to-wall -wall coverage enough for him to be like, oh, he's a household name coming into the NBA draft in comparison to where college basketball is one of ESPN and I would say sports, like Fox Sports and all that stuff. It's very highly covered, especially during March Madness time. And that's where a lot of these players um, get some of that name recognition. And maybe you could go on your point and and see and display where we differ because yeah, I do see your point, but I just believe that if you to set up for some of the off court opportunities, it's a little bit better for them to have that name recognition um, coming from college. Yeah, uh, well, so I'll start by agreeing with you on the point that, like, I think this is more of an isolated incident than, a, than a, a, a harbinger of things to come. One thing I thought that was interesting, he was giving his... Um, interview. Interview, and he mentioned, I don't... I 
it was never my dream to be a college basketball player. It's my dream to be an NBA basketball player. And I was just looking up Brandon Jennings kind of because I was trying to see like what are the similarities and differences between these guys. And Brandon, Gen- Brandon Jennings was actually even more of a highly touted recruit than yep. it makes you realize how unprecedented that was for the time. And I remember him being like, I don't know if he was like on the cover of Sports Illustrated yeah. or what, but yep. he was basically the number one recruit and decided to go to Italy. Yep. Um, I don't even know, like, maybe he went at, like, an earlier age. Like, he went, like, near the end of high school or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, like, he was fairly young. So I thought there were parallels there because he actually kind of said similar things when he was coming out. Like, he was like, I actually think my best chance to gain experience would be playing overseas. And basically, I care about the money. Moody is more of an interesting case because he had eligibility concerns. Also, like, he was set to Great go to SMU. And, yeah. and I know there were problems there. So maybe that kind of comes into play. But I I agree with you. Like, I need to see five out of the top 20 players go abroad before I, I'm concerned it's a problem. You know yeah. what I mean? But here's the point I'd like to make about your branding point. And I think, like, the point of maybe who actually, if we go this route, the kind of player that will go overseas. You made the point about kind of brand recognition and stuff like that. And the point I made to to you in response and where I differ with you, I think for a guy like Zion, yes, going to Duke completely exploded his brand. And, you know, that for the top few players, like maybe John Morant even, like being in college and like he was able to gain exposure like through like the NCAA tournament and stuff like that and, and boost his brand. But once you get past those top three players or so, I'm I think the returns diminish exponentially, and that's in those returns are compounded if you don't go to a blue bud. Cam Reddish and and uh, R.J. Barrett both went to Duke, which right, is right. which is a if R- Cam Reddish went to Louisville, would would his brand have have you know uh, really gotten right. that much recognition? And I what I said to you was. Did DeAndre Hunter, who went to Virginia and is probably going to be like the fourth or fifth pick, really raise the Jared did they, Culver? Jared yeah. Culver, did they raise did they raise their profile that much by by playing in college? And the one thing I'd bring up to you also, Luka Doncic probably has the best brand out of anyone who he has a better brand than DeAndre Ayton after one year in the NBA, which to me st- kind of raises the idea that it maybe doesn't matter so much. Like, it might give you an initial bump to have played in college and played for a blue chip program and show your stuff in college. But what really matters is getting to the league and and showing your worth. And after that, that's kind of what matters. And maybe the, the, the small salary bump you get by playing overseas ends up bridging that gap more than people would expect outside of those top three players. So... If there's a wave, what I would be interested to see, you saw this with that guy Darius Baisley or Blasley, like he the Syracuse yeah, commit, he and skipped. then right. so seeing he'll probably get drafted in maybe the late first round, interned with New Balance. Yes, <laughs> it would be interesting to see if like maybe those top five guys, and once again, once the one and done goes away, everything, all of this will go out the window. But maybe those top five guys see. And I want to make one more point. I'm definitely rambling a little bit. But maybe those top five guys continue to go to college. But maybe guys 20 through 30 start to consider more Mm. and more going towards, like, 
considering those overseas prospects and stuff like that. China will always be on the board as well. I think the European, and we've talked about this before, I think the European floodgates will never really open because I think those leagues are predicated on players be like Barca FC or whatever yeah, their yeah, version. Barcelona. BCF, I forget what their fucking yeah, yeah. initials are. <laughs> but like they're predicate these and like israel for example another league like great basketball league they're actually more like soccer club culture where it's like you're in this on this team for years and years and work your way right. up so i think european basketball will never quite get there but i think these other ancillary leagues are will be a like they're more intriguing for like the 10th to 20th best player than the top five player the one other point i wanted to make I think the branding stuff is a little bit overrated, but the I want to return to what I mentioned about RJ Hampton saying I never saw myself as a college basketball player. I think what's underrated is the fact that over the years and for this generation of guys who never really had the one and done being on the table, I think it's been ingrained in basketball culture that like going to college for one year, especially as it pertains to going to a Duke or a Kentucky or a Syracuse, a team with, like, a lot of... Like, it's ingrained in their mind that, like, this is part of, like, the lineage. Like, this is how I start to build my legacy as, like, a basketball player. Like, having my one year at, at a great college basketball program kind of is, like, what I'm supposed to do. Like, even stepping away from a brand, mm. pers- from a cultural perspective. And I think it takes a guy, like, who thinks slightly differently, like R.J. Hampton apparently does, to maybe break that mold and want to go overseas. And you mentioned all the cultural problems with, like, having to go to a new country and, yeah, you know, live there yeah. for a year. So, so I think that's overrated where the underrated where maybe the brand stuff is a little overrated i guess in response to a couple things so like i think you kind of touched upon it um in your in your um answer (laughs) was that with the luka Doncic thing that was like so different because of what his experience at real madrid and Mm -hmm. him playing professional basketball in europe for six since he was 16 or whatever and him being one of the best players on the team that changes things and I think there's this thing where I if I if my mind if like my memory serves me correctly I believe like Brandon Jennings struggled a lot in Italy yes he did like I think this is that's like the underestimation of some of these players that are going abroad that they don't take into account that it's a step up in play and this ex- idea of being exposed in in these professional leagues definitely i think takes a bigger draft hit for them um in comparison to like someone like i don't know talk maybe even outside those top 3 but like someone like DeAndre Hunter, Jarrett Culver, whatever these guys developing and playing a little bit more in, at Texas Tech or at Virginia and them raising their stock against probably lower-level competition, against competition that's not as good as what you would see maybe in some of those professional leagues. And that's a way to raise their stock. Even John Morant, he he's played in the Ohio Valley Conference, and it's not like a top 
five conference in college basketball. And clearly he's a talented player, but it's better. It's, it's easier, I would say, to uh, replicate some of that type of success in comparison because there's a model behind it in comparison to going abroad and kind of killing it and getting the minutes that you need because the coaches aren't going to be they're not I think they're the mentality for coaches abroad isn't to kind of serve this guy and be like hey we need to give this guy 25 30 minutes a game start him and play him and center the offense around him because I want to get the next highly recruited high school player from the United States. Whereas I think there's some of those concerns in college and they get their reps and their opportunities there. So that I would say is another, I think, overlooked concern that a lot of people are like, oh yeah, get your money, get the bag and go, go play abroad. Yeah. Um, whereas the, it's hard to think about some of the player development types of things. Are they getting the requisite player development abroad? And I would also say our NBA talent evaluators, while I would say these NBA teams have heavily invested um, abroad, their scouting departments have been heavily um, developed, I would say a majority of these NBA teams still focus on U.S.-based talent and I'm curious to see whether or not those types of um, scouts are really being able to like. I think it's and I think this was the question about Luka Doncic um, last year yeah. was how do we evaluate a player like him and is he and I think clearly he's provided an example that he was the best player in that draft and it was pretty clear that he was the best and that that professional league was a step up from college basketball. And where does that fit in? Um, where does this league fit in in comparison to college? Yeah, I just wanted to – I think you made a lot of great points there. I just wanted to hit on a couple things. One, the Jennings – like the – I think that's an interesting point to make. The struggling overseas – and I was thinking like versus struggling in college because to some extent it just depends how good the player is, right? Like right. At Brandon the end Jennings could have theoretically the gone to like Marquette or, you know, even like Kentucky or whatever and been the same quality of player and had the same quality of struggles totally. and his draft totally. stock would have taken the same hit. But I do agree, and I can think I can tie this all in one bow. Well, there are a couple interesting points you made. You could also, I just think there's a flip side to your argument. Like, if the Australian Basketball League is slightly better than college, like the level of play is slightly better than in college, you could make the argument that it's better for you long term to play in the True. higher talent True. league. And that'll, maybe you do worse in the, in the short term, but maybe that prepares you better for the NBA in the long right, term. Right, right. We've possibly seen that with Doncic and stuff too. So I, I just think that's a good point. But I agree that as of right now, like struggling overseas, like Brandon Jennings' experience in Italy versus like Andrew Wiggins' experience in Kansas, where he actually struggled, like Wiggins struggled a little bit in his college year too, but maybe by virtue of being more in the limelight and stuff like that, his draft stock didn't take as much of a hit. I think yeah. that there's probably something to be said for that. But I think at the end of the day, all the points you made about evaluation and stuff, they're hard to take in totality because I think some of it is just like a lot of it is more surface level than we think. And mm -hmm. I think it would take more players going to Europe. And I think it's going to start to change. Luka Doncic possibly will make this change. 
like, I think some of it boils down to, I think a lot of the Luka Doncic stuff was based in, like, American-centric, just, like, wrong-headed thinking. That's you know true. what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think some of it was not based in, like, well, it's so hard to compare these leagues and just being like, well, Europe worse, America better. Like, mm. I do think some of it boiled down to that, truly. I think that's what led a Kings team to take Marvin Bagley over Luka Doncic, despite it being pretty obvious that Doncic was the better player. And I think if more and more, if you had more and more of a track record of success of players going abroad and then coming to the NBA, which would require a larger sample size, things would change. So I think it's kind of a vicious circle in that way. And a lot of this discussion, I think, kind of hinges on that. Like, it's like, well, you would need more players, but in order for more players to go over, like... They need you to would take need, the risk. And, yeah, we, yeah, and you would need more success from the players who made that decision. Right. So I think, I think in some terms, it's kind of like, it's an interesting thing to kind of have a discussion about, but you would really need to watch it play out more before you could come to hard conclusions on it. Right. So basically we're wishing RJ Hampton good yes. luck with the New Zealand breakers. Hey, Mello he Trimble, my boy from Maryland has been killing it on the Sydney Kings and the Australian basketball. Right. League. So hopefully it's, it is a good, I think it's, Behinds like Europe, though, it's like the third best kind of league. So it'll be interesting to see how he does. And yeah, so hopefully he lights it on fire. Yes. That league on fire. And hopefully he gets drafted really high in 2020. So yep. we'll see what ends up happening with that story. And I'll make sure to keep up with it because <laughs> it's going to be, f I think it's fascinating because a lot more people are picking that story up and being like, oh, is it an example for a lot of other people. And I think it's just a little bit overplayed just to kind of get some news out there. Um, but it's fascinating that he had offers from like these high level schools and he, he was just like, all right, I turned them down. And it's not like he had academic issues or anything like that. And I would really love to hear our friend Chris's response to it because he's a huge college basketball guy. So it would have been fascinating to hear his response. And I'm sure we'll get it um, during the summer. Just try to s pick his brain about stuff. Um, so we'll I'm, I'm curious to see what that does, that situation does for the rest of these high school recruits. So, Andrew, I just want to thank you for coming on to the pod again. Um, it was really fun to talk about all things finals and things like that. And I'm really looking forward to good finals. Um, and, yeah, I'm just excited to see what happens post-finals, off-season. NBA draft is going to be coming up in June, uh, post-finals, and then free agency starting in July. It's going to really come quickly yeah, at us. Yeah, pretty much like there's no – we'll probably be doing podcasts just as often as, as we have exactly. been now despite the season not probably going on. Probably a little on, more so. even just yeah. because of all the things that will happen. So be on the lookout for all the podcasts that we'll be releasing uh, for the NBA. And uh, we'll have a special Liverpool versus Tottenham uh, UEFA Champions League preview slash, I don't know, I guess we'll do like a, a preview to the offseason um, later this week. So be on the lookout for that. And if you guys haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. You'll see the name change probably coming soon. Um, and I have the artwork coming. So nice. Yep. So thanks a lot, guys, for tuning in. And um, as always, 
Listen in for the next one. <laughs> Your classic patented catchphrase. It's that crazy. Ends every <laughs> yeah. So thanks, guys, for uh, listening in. <laughs>